Hello and welcome to Peace, the podcast. This podcast is sponsored by Peace, a United Methodist community in Shoreview, Minnesota. I'm Jason Steffenhagen, the lead pastor. And each episode will typically start with a sacred story reading coming from the Holy Scriptures, followed by the message that was given during our Sunday morning worship time. Any announcements for our community will come at the end of each episode, so stick around. If you are curious about learning more about Peace United Methodist Community, you can go to peaceumc.com. Again, that's peaceumc.com. If you would like to find more episodes, you can find them on our website or go to our show page, which is peacethepodcast.podbean.com. Once again, that's peacethepodcast.podbean, P-O-D-B-E-A-N, We hope that you enjoy this episode. Please like, rate, review, subscribe. And now, on to the Sacred Story reading. Our sacred story reading this week comes from the book of John, chapter 14. As you know, we are in the midst of a series uh, on the I Am statements of Jesus, and this is one that comes from John, chapter 14, verses 1 through 6. Do not let your hearts be troubled. troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my parents' house there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take and will take you to myself so that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the source, the divine parent, except through me. This phrase, I am the way, the truth, and the life from John chapter 14, verse 6, is one of those that you may have seen crocheted somewhere or hanging in someone's house somewhere. It's one of the more common phrases, one of the more common verses that people know in the Bible. It's one of those that kind of becomes a hallmark for a lot of people about their dependence, their reliance, their trust in in Jesus. I know this was one of the verses that when I was growing up, that was kind of evidence of the faith that I held, of the faith that was passed on to me. This was like the verse we clung to, that Christ, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And, and it's an important verse. I got to be honest, though, this is a verse that I've wrestled with, struggled with, had tension around for, for a while. And, and the reason is that it was used often as an exclusion passage, that we know the truth, we know the way, we know what eternal life is all about, and those people or that group or that faith doesn't. And it was used in that very exclusionary way, that we, we have this, and we're, we're kind of in on the inside of what's right. And so as I've tried to grow and tried to listen and tried to learn. And as my faith is expanded and I've tried to listen to more people's stories and hear other people's paths and tried to respect and to understand 
this, I keep coming back to this verse and I, I keep wrestling with it and I keep trying to figure it out or keep trying to understand what, what is Jesus getting at here? And so hopefully today at the end, you can see how I'm not just throwing out what I used to know for something new, but that we're trying to hold in tension a few different things as we navigate the complexity of Scripture. So as many of you know, and I talk about this probably too often, I worked in higher ed for 16 years. And in working in higher ed, I often would teach a class every so often. It wasn't my primary role at the university. I was there to lead Bible studies or to hire students to lead Bible studies and and train them and then all that kind of fun stuff and help resource them, uh, work with worship teams, help the, the, the music people do their thing. So I had a lot of different roles on campus. And every once in a while, I get to teach a class. And when you teach a class, you get to have them write a paper. And you know, most of us have written papers in our life, whether it's in high school or whether it's in, in, in college, whatever it is, we, we've written papers before. And, and usually, there's a really simple structure to write a successful paper. You come up with a thesis statement. Whatever, that, whatever the topic of the paper is, you come up with your statement, and then you have your three supporting facts, your three supporting arguments that you're going to make for why your thesis statement is true, and then at the end, you're going to summarize all that at the end. If you're in high school and you have no idea how to write a paper, Merry Christmas, right? Um, you're going to get an A now. So that is how most of Western society has been taught to be successful in making an argument. Right? If you're going to get in an argument with anybody, whether it's making an argument in a paper or whether it's making an argument on CNN or whether it's making an argument with somebody across the table from you over dinner, you got an idea and you got to support that idea with three facts or three ideas or three good reasons for it. And sometimes those reasons are all positive. This is why I'm right, this, this, and this. And sometimes it's because you're, one of your reasons is here's why you're wrong. Right. So for instance, I could come up with a thesis. Right. My thesis could be, Vikings fans are the most tortured fans in all of American sports, okay? And I could give you three really good reasons for it. Reason number one, we've lost four Super Bowls and never won one. Reason number two, the Saints in that dang game against Brett Favre or the Gary Anderson missed field goal against the Falcons, torture. Number three, we live next door to the Packers, it's annoying how many times they've won the Super Bowl compared to us. So those are three reasons why we're the most tortured fans in all of American sports. An antithesis to that, because there's a different way to frame an argument. There's a different way to go about trying to have dialogue or complexity. You could have thesis, antithesis, and then synthesis. When I was in grad school, I read a book by Jürgen Moltmann, and it was super confusing because Moltmann doesn't do thesis with his three arguments. Moltmann would do something where he would put something up as a thesis statement, and then two pages later, three pages later, he would give you the opposite argument, the complete opposite. And you're like, what is he talking about? This is the opposite of what he was trying to say the first part of the chapter. Now I'm super confused. What is he actually trying to tell me? And then at the end of it, he would synthesize both arguments into a new argument using the best of both worlds and creating a third thing. And that's what he was trying to get you to. And at first, my mind exploded because I was like, who writes like this? Why would you do that? It's just confusing. Don't you know I grew up in Minnesota? And he's like, no, I'm German. And I'm like, Ugh. Anyway, so... There's thesis, antithesis, and then synthesis. So using our football analogy, 
you could say one argument is that Vikings fans are the most tortured fans in all of American sports. The antithesis could be Buffalo Bills fans are actually the most tortured fans in all of American sports, and they have their arguments for that as well. They lost four Super Bowls in a row. They lost the greatest football game of the year last year to the Vikings when they fumbled on their own one-yard line, and the Vikings recovered in the end zone for the game-tying touchdown. They lost to the Kansas City Chiefs in the playoff game when they were ahead with 13 seconds to go, and they were kicking off. It makes no sense that you would lose that game. The Chiefs went on to go to the Super Bowl. So you could say, you could make an argument that the, that Bills fans are actually the most tortured fans in all of American sports. Here's the, thin, the, the synthesis of both of those things. Minnesota Vikings fans and Bills fans are both tortured people, and we should just be friends, right? We got kindred spirits over in upper New York, and we should just get along because We've both been through it. And then Browns fans are going to come in and say, actually, we are the most tortured. And then we say, no, sorry, you're not. Anyway, so that's a ridiculous version of thesis, antithesis, synthesis. Let me give you another one. Thesis statement. Christianity should be exclusive. There should be people who are allowed in, and there should be people that get kept out. That's what Christianity should be. Here's an antithesis. Christianity should be inclusive, radically inclusive. All are welcome. We're reconciling and growing for everyone, okay? So there's an antithesis to that. What's the synthesis? You're all like, what's he going to say, right? Interesting, trying to make sense of both of those ideas. Before I even try to imagine a synthesis to that, let me say this. The only way to ever get to a synthesis in complex situations where you're not just talking about two football fan bases arguing about which one's more tortured, but when you're actually talking about things that matter in the world, you have to dig for meaning. And you have to assume positive intent. So if I go back to Christianity should be exclusive, instead of just saying, nah, that can't be right. I don't like it. doesn't sit well with me. Or, yeah, of course it is. We're always right. We're American and Christian. I don't know which one comes first, but yay. Well, why? Why would someone hold that view? Why would someone operate that way? We have to search for meaning, search for understanding, Ask good questions. Dive into the experiences someone have. Use our Wesleyan history. Use our Wesleyan tradition to try to understand this. What do Wesleyans, what do, what do Methodists, what are we supposed to be about? Scripture, tradition, reason, and experience. Those are the four biggies for when it comes to why do you believe what you believe? Why do you hold the values that you hold? What does scripture say? What does tradition say? What is rational? What is reasonable? And what is your experience? If I were to hold those Wesleyan things up to this statement, and then I were to have a conversation with someone, it's very plausible that the scriptures they are reading are being read with an exclusive bent to them, right? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Don't believe in anything else. That's it. Just Jesus. And believe in Jesus the way that we believe in Jesus. Believe in Jesus the way that we understand Jesus. Suddenly, Scripture seems to support this statement. 
Maybe the tradition, maybe the creeds, maybe the prayers that are prayed, maybe the invitations that are made to faith are traditionally more exclusive. So for someone to hold this statement, their tradition is supporting that. Maybe there's a rational, tribal way of understanding the world, that the world often divides itself, and that if you're in this group, we can protect you, we can help create uh Uh, worldview for you. We can help give you identity. We can give you a safe haven to believe and to interact and to have friendships that you can trust are going to have commonality that you have. And you won't have to struggle to understand someone because they're going to believe similar to you. And so it makes sense that as we create a community, we want people that are like us because we're humans and we're naturally tribal. And it's hard to be friends with someone that's different from us. So if we're going to do this religious Christian community thing, Maybe it makes sense, and maybe it's even reasonable that we do it with people that are like-minded. And then, maybe that's your whole experience of life. Maybe you grew up reading that, hearing that, praying that, going to camp and doing that, going to youth group and hearing that, going to a Christian college and hearing that, and your whole life has been in a bubble of Christian exclusivism and Christian supremacy. And suddenly to hold that view is not only reasonable, it's probably the only thing you can imagine. And now, I might not love that you hold that, or I might not even agree that you hold that, but I can see through digging a little bit, trying to understand and create meaning, that you could land there. And sometimes when people have that bent, that view, they want others to join the group. It's not that they want to keep others out, but it's actually that they, they believe that they have the right idea, so they want to bring as many people in as possible. So they're trying their hardest to, to be loving and kind, even though they do draw a line about who's in and who's out. And so if I believe positive intent is in, is in order, then I can see that, man, there is some effort there to try to build a bridge sometimes. Maybe not all the times, maybe not in the ways that we like, but man, there is some energy towards positivity. It's not all anger. The same thing could be said about being inclusive, right? How have you read the Bible? How have you come to understand it? Some of us that want to be radically progressive Christians don't always know how to read the Bible because it's always been an exclusive thing and not an inclusive thing. And so we have to re-examine the Bible and try to understand it in a deeper way and try to nuance it and dance with it a little bit and, and see it as, a, as this mysterious thing that, that we get to try to participate in. And what is God trying to say through this? Because sometimes it does feel pretty exclusive. And sometimes it feels so radically inclusive about God loving all people that I just can't help but see it as inclusive. And so as Scripture can be held as inclusive. The tradition of the church, the tradition of the community can be an inclusive one. The rational understanding is that we all bleed the same blood. We all have, we're all here for a short time. We're all a vapor. We all should get along. We we all are human and we should all love each other. It's a rational, reasonable thing to believe. And my experience is the more I get to understand someone, the more likely I am to connect with them. And my experience has been to be kind and hospitable and inclusive just makes the world more of a loving place. And so I can have those same four things operating to try to 
understand this idea. And so what's the synthesis then, right? I think that there are Christians who are trying their best and they see their faith as exclusive. And I think God is always moving us towards loving our neighbor as we love ourselves. And so that's going to be complex. I actually don't have a good synthesis for this. I couldn't even figure it out. I've been wrestling with it all week. I was like, how do I synthesize these two ideas? I don't know. I think that's our job. And here's why I think it's our job. Because if we can't do this as the church, then we are failing as the church. We have to be people who are for everyone. And I've said this in a few smaller settings, and I maybe have said it up here, but if we are truly an inclusive community, then if someone walks in the doors and is an exclusive Christian, we say, welcome. You belong here. We want your story. We want your life. We want your energy. We want your voice to be here so that we, as a body, as a community, can find a way forward. Doesn't mean we're going to allow people to hurt one another, because we will never allow for that. We will never make room for that. We will say we're not going to hurt each other, even if we view the Bible differently, even if we believe different things about it. We will not hurt one another. But we want to be for everyone. We want to come alongside one another and figure out how to do life well together, not just for ourselves, but for the sake of our community, for the sake of one another. How does this at all connect to what I've been talking about? The thesis statement that is often held about John chapter 14, verses 1 through 6, is that this is a passage about how you get to heaven. That is often how this passage has been presented to many, many people. That Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And that when he's talking about going to prepare a place for us, he's talking about going to heaven so that we can join God in heaven, join Jesus and the Spirit in heaven one day when we die. That that's what Jesus is doing. He's preparing a place in heaven for us, and that we just have to believe in Jesus, we have to trust Jesus, because Jesus is the way, the truth, and life everlasting, eternal life. That's what is going on in this passage. And in many regards, you may hold that view, and it can be a beautiful view. It can be a beautiful thing to have a faith that says, I trust in Jesus as the way to everlasting life. I trust in Jesus, that Jesus is true, that the cross is real, that resurrection happened, and that God has God loves me so much that God took all of my sin on the cross, died for my sake, so that I could have everlasting life with God in heaven. That is a beautiful thing to believe. And you can believe that Jesus is the way to life everlasting. Let me put out an antithesis to that, or just a different idea. If we go back one chapter to verse to chapter 13, Jesus has just told his disciples, those closest to him, that, that one of them is going to betray him to the governing authorities. And we know that's going to be Judas. He says, one of you is going to betray me. You're going to turn on me. Not just deny that I'm who I say I am. Not just leave me in my time of need. But actually be the one to betray me to the authorities so that I will be crucified. One of you will do that. The rest of you are going to leave me. And Peter, 
the one who's closest to me, kind of the right-hand person here, is going to actually deny me three times. So one of you is going to betray me, the rest of you are going to leave me, and Peter, you're going to deny that you even know me three times, and you're going to do it before the sun comes up tomorrow morning. And of course, the disciples are like, what in the world is he talking about? We've seen miracle after miracle, the feeding of the 5,000. He walked on water. He's healed all these people. He said all these beautiful things about the kingdom of God and this idea of of justice coming. And and he's literally made blind people see. He raised Lazarus from the dead. Why would we ever, let alone leave him, let alone deny him, let alone betray him? Why would we do any of that? And then we get... 2, verse 1, do not let your hearts be troubled. Why would Jesus say that? Well, because clearly their hearts are troubled by the news that this relationship they have with Jesus that they've cultivated over three years means so much to them that they're going to throw it away in an evening. They would be troubled. They would be troubled. I mean, this is a really, really poor example of this, but it would be like talking to your spouse and being like, By this time tomorrow, you're going to want a divorce. What are you talking about? Why would I, what, what? No, I don't, like that would trouble me. If Michelle walked up to me and was like, by the way, tomorrow you're going to want to divorce me. I'd be like, what did you do? Like, what happened? Like, why? I would be so troubled by that. I would be so put off by that. I would have no idea what in the world she's talking about. But Jesus knows what's coming. He knows that he's about to be turned into the authorities. He knows it's about to go south. And he knows that it's going to be so costly and so hard and so painful that they're all going to be like, I I love the idea of love and justice, but this is a little much for me. Like, being arrested and crucified and whipped and beaten just sounds like a lot. So... I don't know if I can. And so they're going to leave and they're going to go away. Jesus knows what's coming and he's just trying to prepare them for it. He's trying to get them ready. And he's saying, in my parents' house, there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself so that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way to the place where I am going. And, And the hard part about this passage for those trying to reframe it a little bit, is that we have Thomas's voice. Thomas is like, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we possibly get there? And you have to remember, Thomas is, I'm going to try to say this really generously because I actually really, really love Thomas. I think Thomas is one of the coolest disciples ever. Thomas is very, very literal. That's the nice way of saying it. Thomas is just straightforward and blunt and honest. When he doesn't see Jesus raised from the dead, he says, I don't believe it until I can put my hand in his side and I can see the nail piercings in his hand. Like he won't believe it if anyone, everyone else says it. And sure enough, Jesus is, you know, back from the dead and he shows up in the upper room with them and he just walks up to Thomas and he's like, here I am, bro. I got holes in my wrists. I got a hole in my side. It really happened. I'm really back right? So Thomas is like, I need proof. I need evidence. So when Jesus is like, I'm going to go somewhere and get ready for you, and then I'm going to bring you there, but you already know the way. He's like, where are you going, Lord? Where, where are you going? Like, it's a, is, it, is it like over in, you know, Capernaum, or is it over in this area? Is it over in Caesarea Philippi? Like, where are we going? Like, where is this place? How do I get there? Like, I need the directions. I need, I need Google Maps to help me out. Like, help me out, right? Thomas is very, very literal. Jesus is trying to do something more nuanced than that. Because this passage is not simply about 
how we go to heaven, and it's not how we go from Jerusalem over to Nazareth. It's not about that. It's about relationship. Here's what I mean by that. In a typical Jewish dating, courtship, and marriage setting, the way that it would go is that you would get betrothed to someone, find someone that you love, find someone that you're interested in, go on a few dates, you know, to the water well and back, whatever it was, go on a camel ride. And then you would decide or your families would decide that the two of you should be married. And so you would get engaged to that person. You would be betrothed and you would go through a ceremony of betrothal. And in that ceremony betrothal, you are basically making a commitment to one another that I am with you and you are with me. We are going to become one, but not yet. It's not done. This is only step one. They get betrothed to one another. And then the groom, the husband, would go back to the father's house, to their parents' house, and would add on to the building. So whatever building they occupy, they would build a room onto the house. And in that would be the room where they are now going to live the rest of their lives as part of that family's household. They would move into the family home in this new room that the groom has built for he and the bride. And so that was what he would go do. And then he would come back and get the bride and then go to the house that had been prepared for them. And so what's going on in this passage is Jesus is saying, I am preparing a place for you, and I'm going to come get you. And you know where that place is. And Thomas doesn't understand because he's not seeing the metaphor here. He's not seeing the nuance to this relationship. What Jesus is trying to say is that I am. I'm where you and I are together. No matter where I go, you go. Like, we're one. We're gonna, we're, this relationship is so meaningful that no matter where I go, you are with me. Even if you turn your back on me, you're with me because I'm never leaving you or forsaking you. I'm never denying you. I'm never, ever going to not love you because what I'm doing is marrying you. What I'm doing is I'm committing myself to you forever. That's what Jesus is trying to say to Thomas and the disciples in this moment is that despite everything that you are about to do and all the ways that you're going to shame yourself for doing it, I'm not done with you yet. I won't be done with you. I never will be because I'm marrying you. I'm going to have, I'm going to be intimately part of you. We're going to become one, you and I. And we have an example of this type of relationship with Mary and Joseph. Because remember when they are betrothed to be married, and then she becomes pregnant with the Christ child, and Joseph is going to divorce her quietly, even though they haven't been together? Well, that's because they're in the betrothal period, right? So Joseph is off getting ready for the marriage, but they haven't consummated it yet. They haven't actually done all that they need to do ceremonially. And so they're in the in-between time and Mary got pregnant. How did that happen, right? Joseph is like, well, I was betrothed, but clearly she's not faithful. So I'm gonna just quietly try to get out of this before we actually move in together. And so we have an example of this type of relationship even in the scriptures in the birth of Jesus. And so here's Jesus now saying to the disciples, this is how much you matter to me. And so when he says to them, when, when Thomas is like, I don't know how to get there. Jesus says, buddy, I am the way. I am the truth. 
of this reality. I am the life, like you and I together, us. This is what it's all about, is us being together. So what's the synthesis of these two ideas? The synthesis is whether for eternity, which is beautiful, or on earth, Christ invites all people into relationship. Christ is inviting all people into relationship, both here and now and forevermore. Let me give you an example of this. I don't know if I can do this one-handed, but I'm going to try. This is a lemon, as you can see. This lemon represents the first thesis, that this is about getting to heaven. And it's a beautiful, useful understanding of things, just like this lemon is beautiful and useful. I would like to eat it sometime or put it in a drink. This is, you know, is a lime. This represents the antithesis. This is that it's all about relationship in John chapter 14, in that Jesus is trying to help people understand the intimacy and the promise of the relationship that we have with Christ. But what if, you guys don't think I can juggle, but I actually can. So here we go, right? So these can be side by side, right? We can hold them separately, or we can make them dance together. And then, wait, hang on, example's not done. If we really want to have the synthesis, we just get some Sprite. Lemon lime, baby. All right. Okay, let me give you one last thing before uh, John and Steve come back up to lead us in a final song before we do a blessing. Um, this comes from Morgan Harper. Oh, I spilled on myself. That was smooth. Um, this comes from Morgan Harper Nichols, and I just want this to be like a prayer. So I'm not going to pray at the end of this. Let's just let this kind of be our prayer. And then when I finish, John and Steve will, will come on up. This is 10 things that are easy to forget. You can look forward to the future while also missing what was. You can be grateful for how far you have come while also grieving what has changed. You can be excited for other people in your life while still desiring beautiful things to happen for you too. You can support others while also acknowledging your own needs. You can love someone while still establishing and maintaining healthy boundaries. You can be grateful for where you are while also acknowledging the harder things. You can be really good at something while still letting yourself ask for help. You can challenge yourself while also being gentle with yourself. You can share your story openly and honestly while also choosing to keep certain things private. You can give your all to what's a priority in this season while also giving all to rest. That really was a beautiful synthesis, so thank you, John. I appreciate that. You know, one way to find a synthesis sometimes is not to try to just make this thing and this thing both true, but it's sometimes to find the third thing that actually gets at the deeper part of all of it. And that's why I really love that last line. Take me up and set me free.
Because the beginning of that song was about the here and the now, getting into the healing waters, this experience that we're having in the flesh and the blood, this this carnal life that we're living. And then the second part of that song was about this heavenly idea of going up with Christ into heaven and with Jesus. And what is all of that about? What 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 do both of those things encompass? Set me free. Set me free. We want to be free, both here and then. We need the freedom of God's love and the freedom to be with Christ. And so that is a beautiful synthesis for for today. Will you please uh, stand as you are able, embody your spirit for a closing blessing. And let me just pause before we get to the closing blessing and say that when I was talking earlier about the exclusive view of Christian faith, I was not trying to, in any way, shape, or form, postulate that it's not harmful at times, or that it isn't painful to be excluded or to be told you're not welcome. Quite the opposite. That, that is the troubling part of that idea, is that it is so painful when you're not part, when you're not invited, when you're told you don't belong. And so when I say we have to hold some positive intent, that's because I want to believe there's something there that's redeemable and we can move towards together in community. Not that we make the awful okay. We never make the awful okay. We name it for what it is, and then we try to find a way forward together in community. Because as John 17 says, we have to be unified. We have to move towards unity. That's what Christ calls us to. Um, That's what the church is. That's what the church is struggling to be at all times. Um, So hear, hear this blessing. May you go knowing the love of Christ, the type of love that is overwhelming and unquestionable, the type of love that permeates every part of your being. May you trust that Christ is with you, that that relationship is the way and is true and brings about life, both here and in the future and in heaven to come. May Christ's love move you to be the person that doesn't just argue for a thesis or antithesis, but seeks to synthesize, to bring together, to be a unifier, to be someone others can look to to say, with them I know I belong. May you go in God's love, and may you go in peace. See you next week. We are a community that is reconciling and growing for everyone, and that for everyone is really important to us because we are an inclusive community. Um, No matter what your background, no matter who you love, no matter what life throws your way, we want you to know that we are for you and that you belong with us. And we want to journey with you through life's many ups and downs. It's a circuitous journey. Did I say that word right? Circuitous? Pretty close. Thank you. Um, That one's always a tongue twister for me. Anyway, no matter what life throws your way, we want to be there for it. And so one of the things that we want to highlight is Peace Prayers. Peace Prayers comes out on the Tuesday news every single week. It's an opportunity for you to share a public prayer request or a public celebration that you just want others to let God know that you're celebrating. And so that's a way for all of us to join together as a community and to really pray for one another and be there for one another. One thing that we are trying to really grow and emphasize as we are a community that's reconciling and growing for everyone is that that for everyone includes the youth. 
And tonight we have a special youth group. So if you have a young person in your life, send them to church tonight because at seven o'clock we are going to be doing yoga in the narthex with Shayla Cunningham from Hot Dish Yoga. So it should be a really, uh, the narthex being the commons, right? The commons, yes. We have to use proper vernacular. Just kidding. Um, so yeah, right here in the comments, um, we're going to be doing some yoga. Uh, the youth will be doing that uh, for Encore tonight. Um, Shayla Cunningham is going to be leading that, and we're really excited for her to do that. So um, if you have a youth in your life, tell them to come to church. If you are a youth, bring a friend. Uh, we really would love to have you enjoy just a nice, relaxing time of yoga. And for if you're curious, there are different forms of yoga. This one's going to be on the slightly more relaxing side of yoga, as opposed to the really challenging, how could I possibly do that side of yoga? I've done both. I fell asleep doing the relaxing one, which was awesome, and I was sore for three days doing the other one. So kudos to the youth getting a chance to do that. Also tonight at five o'clock in the fellowship hall, we're going to be doing a family game night. Family game night just means the church family, anyone connected to us, your friends, your neighbors, whoever you want, come on to back to the back to the community here, come back to church at five o'clock, and we're going to be having food. So bring a dish to share. We'll provide the desserts. We'll provide some drinks. We just want you to come and have fun together. We'll have some games out there. Every, every time I make a slide for this, I change the background. In this one, I did chess. So if you want to challenge my seven-year-old to a game of chess, he loves playing chess. I think Brody and he were playing one time. I think Brody beat him. Um, but but oh, they tied. See, so the seven-year-old challenge him. He loves a good challenge, and he also thinks he wins all the time, which is not true. I beat him every time. Anyway, so come to family game night. Bring a game. We have games, but we'd love to see you there. Everyone is welcome. Um, as you can see in your bulletin, there's some other announcements, including the little free library. Uh, there's a Christmas tree in the back, intentionally put there, not just left over from Christmas. It has little notes on it. You can grab a note, and it's a way to help us get the resources that we need to supply the little free library with the books when it will be debuting once the snow thaws and around Mother's Day. We're going to be um, kind of inaugurating that and uh, cutting the ribbon on that. So look for more information on that coming soon, uh, but that is coming up, and we are building our, uh, our stockpile of books, so please participate as you are able. Today is the last day to get your Easter flowers ordered. East, uh, forms are in the back by the doors. Grab an order form, fill it out today, leave it in the office, and we'll be sure to get your Easter flower order in in time for Easter. Any other announcements, you can take a look in the... Um, in the announcement section of your bulletin. Also, if you have not signed up for Tuesday News, that is the primary way that you can get up-to-date information every week on what's going on around here. Thank you for listening to this episode of Peace, the podcast. If you would like to learn more about our community, go to peaceumc.com. Again, that's peaceumc.com. For more episodes of this podcast, you can go to our website or go to the show page, peacethepodcast.podbean.com. Again, peacethepodcast.podbean.com. May you experience the love of God and may you have peace.